Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. 10. It was three o'clock when they attained their destination. The obliging and phlegmatic Jasmine fell off to sleep immediately, leaning against the trunk of a large tree, while John and Kisman sat, his arm around her, and watched the desperate ebb and flow of the dying battle among the ruins of a vista that had been a garden spot that morning. Shortly after four o'clock, the last remaining gun gave out a clanging sound and went out of action as a swift tongue of red smoke. Though the moon was down, they saw that the flying bodies were circling closer to the earth. When the planes had made certain that the beleaguered possessed no further resources, they would land, and the dark and glittering rain of the Washingtons would be over. With the cessation of the firing, the valley grew quiet. The embers of the two aeroplanes glowed like the eyes of some monster crouching in the grass. The chateau stood dark and silent, beautiful without light as it had been beautiful in the sun, while the woody rattles of Nemesis filled the air above with a growing and receding complaint. Then John perceived that Kisman, like her sister, had fallen sound asleep. It was long after four when he became aware of footsteps along the path they had lately followed, and he waited in breathless silence until the persons to whom they belonged had passed the vantage point he occupied. There was a faint stir in the air now that was not of human origin, and the dew was cold. He knew that the dawn would soon break. John waited until the steps had gone a safe distance up the mountain and were inaudible. Then he followed. About halfway up to the steep summit, the trees fell away, and a hard saddle of rock spread itself over the diamond beneath. Just before he reached this point, he slowed down his pace, warned by an animal sense that there was life just ahead of him. Coming to a high boulder, he lifted his head gradually above its edge. His curiosity was rewarded. This is what he saw. Braddock Washington was standing there motionless, silhouetted against a gray sky without sound or sign of life. As the dawn came up out of the east, lending a gold-green color to the earth, it brought the solitary figure into insignificant contrast with the new day. While John watched, his host remained for a few moments, absorbed in some inscrutable contemplation. Then he signaled to the two men who crouched at his feet to lift the burden which lay between them. As they struggled upright, the first yellow beam of the sun struck through the innumerable prisms of an immense and exquisitely chiseled diamond, and a white radiance was kindled that glowed upon the air like a fragment of the morning star. The bearers staggered beneath its weight for a moment. Then their rippling muscles caught and hardened under the wet shine of the skins, and the three figures were again motionless in their defiant impotency before the heavens. After a while, the white man lifted his head and slowly raised his arms in a gesture of attention, as one who would call a great crowd to hear. But there was no crowd, only the vast silence of the mountain and the sky, 
broken by faint bird voices down among the trees. The figure on the saddle of rock began to speak ponderously and with an inextinguishable pride. You! Out there! he cried in a trembling voice. You! There! He paused, his arms still uplifted, his head held attentively, as though he were expecting an answer. John strained his eyes to see whether there might be men. John strained his eyes to see whether there might be men coming down the mountain, but the mountain was bare of human life. There was only sky and a mocking flute of wind along the treetops. Could Washington be praying? For a moment, John wondered. Then the illusion passed. There was something in the man's whole attitude, antithetical to prayer. Oh, you above there! The voice was strong and confident. This was no forlorn supplication. If anything, there was in it a quality of monstrous condescension. You there! Words too quickly uttered to be understood, flowing one into the other, John listened breathlessly, catching a phrase here and there, while the voice broke off, resumed, broke off again, now strong and argumentative, now colored with a slow, puzzled impatience. Then a conviction commenced to dawn on the single listener, and as realization crept over him, a spray of quick blood rushed through his arteries. Braddock Washington was offering a bribe to God. That was it. There was no doubt. The diamond in the arms of his slaves was some advanced sample, a promise of more to follow. That, John perceived after a time, was a thread running through his sentences. Prometheus enriched was calling to witness forgotten sacrifices, forgotten rituals, prayers obsolete before the birth of Christ. For a while his discourse took the form of reminding God of this gift, or that which divinity had deigned to accept from men, Great churches, if he would rescue cities from the plague, gifts of myrrh and gold, of human lives and beautiful women and captive armies, of children and queens, of beasts of the forest and field, sheep and goats, harvests and cities, whole conquered lands that had been offered up in lust or blood for his appeasal, buying a mead's worth of alleviation from the divine wrath. And now he, Braddock Washington, Emperor of Diamonds, King and priest of the age of gold, arbiter of splendor and luxury, would offer up a treasure such as princes before him had never dreamed of. Offer it up, not in suppliance, but in pride. He would give to God, he continued, getting down to specifications, the greatest diamond in the world. This diamond would be cut with many more thousand facets than there were leaves on a tree, and yet the whole diamond would be shaped with the perfection of a stone no bigger than a fly. Many men would work upon it for many years. It would be set in a great dome of beaten gold, wonderfully carved and equipped with gates of opal and crusted sapphire. In the middle would be hollowed out a chapel presided over by an altar of iridescent, decomposing, ever-changing radium, which would burn out the eyes of any worshipper who lifted up his head from prayer. And on this altar... There would be slain for the amusement of the divine benefactor any victim he should choose, even though it should be the greatest and most powerful man alive. In return, he asked only a simple thing, 
a thing that for God would be absurdly easy, only that matters should be as they were yesterday at this hour, and that they should so remain. So very simple. Let but the heavens open, swallowing these men and their aeroplanes, and then close again. Let him have his slaves once more, restored to life and well. There was no one else with whom he had ever needed to treat or bargain. He doubted only whether he had made his bribe big enough. God had his price, of course. God was made in man's image, so it had been said he must have his price. And the price would be rare. No cathedral whose building consumed many years, no pyramid constructed by ten thousand workmen would be like this cathedral, this pyramid. He paused here. That was his proposition. Everything would be up to specifications, and there was nothing vulgar in his assertion that it would be cheap at the price. He implied that Providence could take it or leave it. As he approached the end, his sentences became broken, became short and uncertain, and his body seemed tense, seemed strained to catch the slightest pressure or whisper of life in the spaces around him. His hair had turned gradually white as he talked, and now he lifted his head high to the heavens like a prophet of old, magnificently mad. Then, as John stared in giddy fascination, it seemed to him that a curious phenomenon took place somewhere around him. It was as though the sky had darkened for an instant, as though there had been a sudden murmur and a gust of wind, a sound of faraway trumpets, a sighing like the rustle of a great silken robe. For a time the whole of nature round about partook of this darkness. The bird's song ceased, the trees were still, and far over the mountain there was a mutter of dull, menacing thunder. That was all. The wind died along the tall grasses of the valley. The dawn and the day resumed their place and the time, and the risen sun sent hot waves of yellow mist that made its path bright before it. The leaves laughed in the sun, and their laughter shook until each bough was like a girl's school in fairyland. God had refused to accept the bribe. For another moment, John watched the triumph of the day. Then, turning, he saw a flutter of brown down by the lake, then another flutter, then another, like the dance of golden angels alighting from the clouds. The aeroplanes had come to earth. John slid off the boulder and ran down the side of the mountain to the clump of trees, where the two girls were awake and waiting for him. Kismin sprang to her feet, the jewels in her pockets jingling, a question on her parted lips. But instinct told John that there was no time for words. They must get off the mountain without losing a moment. He seized a hand of each, and in silence they threaded the tree trunks, washed with light now and with the rising mist. Behind them from the valley came no sound at all, except the complaint of the peacocks far away and the pleasant of morning. When they had gone about a half mile, they avoided the parkland and entered a narrow path that led over the next rise of ground. At the highest point of this, they paused and turned around. Their eyes rested upon the mountainside they had just left, oppressed by some dark sense of tragic impendency. Clear against the sky, a broken, white-haired man was slowly descending the steep slope, followed by two gigantic and emotionless men, 
who carried a burden between them which still flashed and glittered in the sun. Halfway down, two other figures joined them. John could see that they were Mrs. Washington and her son, upon whose arm she leaned. The aviators had clambered from their machines to the sweeping lawn in front of the chateau, and with rifles in hand were starting up the Diamond Mountain in skirmishing formation. But the little group of five which had formed farther up and was engrossing all the watchers' attention had stopped upon a ledge of rock. The men stooped and pulled up what appeared to be a trap door in the side of the mountain. Into this they all disappeared, the white-haired man first, then his wife and son, finally the two men, the glittering tips of whose jeweled headdresses caught the sun for a moment before the trap door descended and engulfed them all. Kisman clutched John's arm. Oh, she cried wildly, where are they going? What are they going to do? It must be some underground way of escape. A little scream from the two girls interrupted his sentence. Don't you see? sobbed Kisman hysterically. The mountain is wired. Even as she spoke, John put up his hands to shield his sight. Before their eyes, the whole surface of the mountain had changed suddenly to a dazzling burning yellow, which showed up through the jacket of turf as light shows through a human hand. For a moment the intolerable glow continued, and then, like an extinguished filament, it disappeared, revealing a black waste from which blue smoke rose slowly, carrying off with it what remained of vegetation and human flesh. Of the aviators there was left neither blood nor bone, They were consumed as completely as the five souls who had gone inside. Simultaneously, and with an immense concussion, the chateau literally threw itself into the air, bursting into flaming fragments as it rose, and then tumbling back upon itself into a smoking pile that lay projecting half into the water of the lake. There was no fire. What smoke there was drifted off mingling with the sunshine. And for a few minutes later, a powdery dust of marble drifted from the great featureless pile that had once been the House of Jewels. There was no more sound, and the three people were alone in the valley. At sunset, John and his two companions reached the two. At sunset, John and his two companions reached the huge cliff which had marked the boundaries of the Washington's dominion, and looking back, found the valley tranquil and lovely in the dusk. They sat down to finish the food which Jasmine had brought with her in a basket. There, she said, as she spread the tablecloth and put the sandwiches in a neat pile upon it. Don't they look tempting? I always think that food tastes better outdoors. With that remark, remarked Kisman, Jasmine enters the middle class. Now, said John eagerly, turn out your pocket and let's see what jewels you brought along. If you made a good selection... We three ought to live comfortably all the rest of our lives. Obediently, Kisman put her hand in her pocket and tossed two handfuls of glittering stones before her. Not so bad, cried John enthusiastically. They aren't very big, but hello. His expression changed as he held one of them up to the declining sun. Why, these aren't diamonds. There's something the matter. By golly, exclaimed Kisman with a startled look. What an idiot I am. Why, these are rhinestones, cried John. I know, she broke into a laugh. 
I opened the wrong drawer. They belonged on the dress of a girl who visited Jasmine. I got her to give them to me in exchange for diamonds. I'd never seen anything but precious stones before. And this is what you brought? I'm afraid so, she fingered the brilliance wistfully. I think I like these better. I'm a little tired of diamonds. Very well, said John gloomily. We'll have to live in Hades, and you will grow old telling incredulous women that you got the wrong drawer. Unfortunately, your father's bank books were consumed with him. Well, what's the matter with Hades? If I come home with a wife at my age, my father is just as liable as not to cut me off with a hot coal, as they say down there. Jasmine spoke up. I love washing, she said quietly. I have always washed my own handkerchief. I'll take in laundry and support you both. Do they have washwomen in Hades? asked Gisman innocently. Of course, answered John. It's just like anywhere else. I thought perhaps it was too hot to wear any clothes. John laughed. Just try it, he suggested. They'll run you out before you're half started. Will father be there? she asked. John turned to her in astonishment. Your father is dead, he replied somberly. Why should he go to Hades? You have it confused with another place that was abolished long ago. After supper, they folded up the tablecloth and spread their blankets for the night. What a dream it was, Gisman sighed, gazing up at the stars. How strange it seems to be here, with one and a penniless fiancé. Under the stars, she repeated. I never noticed the stars before. I always thought of them as great big diamonds that belonged to someone. Now they frighten me. They make me feel that it was all a dream, all my youth. It was a dream, said John quietly. Everybody's youth is a dream, a form of chemical madness. How pleasant then to be insane. So I'm told, said John gloomily. I don't know any longer. At any rate, let us love for a while, for a year or so, you and me. That's a form of divine drunkenness that we can all try. There are only diamonds in the whole world. Diamonds and perhaps the shabby gift of disillusion. Well, I have that last, and I will make the usual nothing of it. Shivered. Turn up your coat collar, little girl. The night's full of chill, and you'll get pneumonia. His was a great sin who first invented consciousness. Let us lose it for a few hours. So wrapping himself in his blanket, he fell off to sleep. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the podcast. You can send me your story suggestions at bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>